Listener production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of The Good Oil Podcast. And welcome to our latest episode. Now, if this is new to you, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff and the real stuff. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. We're going to bring you conversation with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, speaking of all of those things, today's guest is a return guest, and we're very lucky and very fortunate to be able to welcome Tim Harcourt back to The Good Oil. G'day, Tim. G'day, Scott. You could call it The Good Oil and Natural Gas, given that it's Russia, couldn't you? (laughs) You could, exactly. I tell you what, I could sell The Good Oil for a lot more than I could have, but uh, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, mate, uh, look, I just if you, you've been on before, as I said, uh, late January. Listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check Tim out, we had a fantastic conversation about what Tim called the three Cs, COVID, China and climate. And mate, back then we weren't quite ready for what was going to come. Neither of us had any inkling, not, not anyone else really, of what we'd now be talking about some what, only a month and a half later. But before we get into that, mate, just for those who don't know you, I'm sure everyone does, you are the Industry Professor and Chief Economist at the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at UTS, University of Technology, Sydney. You also host the Airport Economist TV program. You're on theairportoeconomist.com.au. Uh, you're on the Listener app. Uh, you host your own podcast called The Airport Economist and you've got a TV show called After the Pandemic. So, mate, lots going on, uh, but uh, let's get to the nub of it. We're going to try and keep it current. We're doing this a bit out of sequence, by the way, listeners, um, putting this one out as quickly as we can because there is so much changing. But you've been very kind, Tim, to spare us some of your time uh, to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, the, the war uh, in Ukraine is a horrible humanitarian disaster. I think it's fair to call it. Um, we are going to focus on largely the financial implications because that's what you do for a job. That's what I do for a job. Uh, but it's important that we put that humanitarian reality out there first and, and acknowledge that is far, far, far more important, far more serious um, and impactful than anything that impacts the world of money. Uh, but as I said, that's kind of what we are here for. We're here to talk about that. And so we'll, we'll get on with that if that's uh, okay with our listeners. I just want to kind of make that point up front. Mate, um, first question, have you been to the Ukraine? I haven't been to the Ukraine, but my ancestors come from Kharkov, which is, of course, that's been under fire. Uh, they were Harkovits, which means the Jews from Kharkov. And they moved to Transylvania, Romania, and then they ended up in uh, in Australia. Uh, and they had um, a series of general stores and a boat called the Wandering Jew that went up and down the, the rivers in New South Wales. Uh, I have seen photos of that up in Brewarner, I think. The that's yeah, exactly right. You've got, a, you've got a great memory. Yeah, it ended up in uh, Rana where the, the Aboriginal fish traps are. And uh, yeah, my, my grandfather, who was Harkovitz, he was actually born in Lismore. So we've had Harkov with the war and we've had Lismore with the floods. So all happening. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. You've been, you've been at the centre of everything. Really hard to even try and get a head around, you know, what's happening there, again, from a humanitarian perspective. From a financial perspective, though, mate, there is there's a physical economy response and there is a market and financial markets response. Let's start with the physical economy. Um, my understanding is that Russia exports something like 16% of the world's oil and gas and about 11% of the world's wheat. I think those are old numbers, but I don't think they've changed all that much. Obviously, lots of sanctions, and we might talk about the, the validity or otherwise of those in a minute, but just from a, from a trade economics perspective, which is your bread and butter, what does that do to the world when we have sanctions put on an economy uh, that controls such a large chunk of those two really important commodity groups? 
Well, you're right, Scott. I've spent a lot of time in Russia, and Russia's economy since the fall of communism has just been oil and all the natural gas. And 20% of Germany's gas comes from Russia. Hence, Germany, the EU, been pretty reluctant to put these sanctions on, but they have come to the party. So, you know, the big first-order economic effects, I, I, I suppose, of the shock of Ukraine would be, A, what will the impact be on oil and gas if, you know, the taps are turned off? Will Europe get its gas from Qatar? Uh, other sources, Saudi? Will America rely on its own oil? That'll be, you know, one order effect. The other thing that we ignore compared to resources is, of course, crops. I mean, Ukraine has, I think, 70% of the world's best soil. Uh, you know, it's a huge wheat exporter. So um, when you think of Australia and Russia and Ukraine, they're the big wheat exporters of the world. Now, um, you know, Russia's going to try and destroy that, but ultimately that's where Ukraine's, you know, bread and butter comes from. You even see the Ukrainian flag we've seen everywhere, the blue sky with the wheat, the wheat fields. Oh, right. I didn't know that was the origin of the flag. That agricultural impact's got to be something significant. So I think those real effects, even before we look at, you know, what you know so well, the impact of financial markets, the the, the real effects are pretty pretty extraordinary price-wise and then eventually quantity-wise. So let's go into that if we can, mate. Uh, obviously, and this is, by definition, this is why it's a, um, it, it's a it's a challenge to try and work through because things are moving so quickly. I didn't realise Ukraine was also one of the world's largest wheat exporters. We, we saw during COVID the supply chain impact. And that was kind of more logistics, more than actual production and, and supply of the, of the commodities or the, the products themselves. This feels like another quantum back in the supply chain. This is the very, very origin of a lot of these products. And as you say... Uh, pipelines to Germany being one of the biggest ones, oil and gas-wise. Can you kind of talk us through what happens in those markets as these things start to, uh, the sanctions start to bite or the supply chains get disrupted? How does how does the world start to deal with, again, just, just sticking with the commodities for the moment, the flow of these things and the impact on prices and how that then settles down if it ever does subsequent to this? In the first order, there's, there's a price uh, effect uh, in the sense that, you know, if Germany suddenly has to get, get its... Uh, you know, gas from somewhere else before they can make that adjustment. You know, there's going to be a, obviously be a shortage, and prices will jack up. And you've seen that with oil. You've seen that at the Bowsers. You've you've said on, on Channel Nine and so on. Um, and 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 then secondly, that's even before the sanctions hit. When you have the impact of SWIFT, the Mastercard and Visa pulling out. You know, Russians can't. Russian oligarchs can't. You know, selling their yachts around the Mediterranean and their jets around the world. So. Even before the sanctions, you're going to get a price effect and then a quantity adjustment. And, you know, Australia doesn't have great bilateral ties with Russia. You know, when I was there, there was, you know, we imported some vodka and sunflower seeds and there was some, you know, kangaroo meat going to Russia and, you know, obviously a lot of technology companies doing things in oil and gas and Sakhalin on the Pacific coast. But there wasn't a lot of bilateral trade. But if you think that our... Major trading partners like South Korea and Japan and China are energy importers, net energy importers, and net food importers, a lot of food and energy security issues, then anything that jacks up prices is going to make it really tough on our trading partners. So the impact of a shock from Russia, Ukraine on Asia, that's where the impact's going to be for Australia. So that, I've been watching quite closely the flow and implications. And also, as you said, you know, how will that affect the supply chain, particularly on the agricultural side if, if wheat, if Ukraine's that big exporter? 
Mate, you're doing this for for a while now. Uh, what do you have a sense of the medium term? I mean, whenever there's additional supply or restricted supply, additional demand, restricted demand, markets have a way of of finding their way to some sort of equilibrium, at least as the economists say. Um, that'll that'll find its way at, at a price, at a quantity. Just from a commodity perspective, what's the path from here to some sort of normalisation? I don't want to make predictions necessarily, but how do we get to what is a, a normal solution or normal situation uh, once the initial shock goes through the system? Well, you're right in a sense. Markets always find a way. You know, that's why Paul Keating flooded the dollar, didn't he? He wanted the market yeah, exactly, to find right. its own price instead of the speculators. Um, I mean, equilibrium is not automatic. It's sort of one resting place to another, but it does sort itself out. The question is, to what extent prices are high until other sources of supply come on board? I'm always amazed at how quickly things can adjust, you know, how quickly can Qatar move to Europe? And it sounds like Qatar was already doing a few deals while Putin was sabre-rattling. And also, you've noticed China, you know, you know, China, before the Beijing Winter Olympics, had Putin over there, and Xi Jinping were talking about their no-limits partnership. You've seen China back away very, very quickly, you know, and I think they don't want to get caught up. If Russia's going to be isolated in the world trading system and if Russia's going to be isolated uh, in the global economy, China doesn't want to be caught up on that. And I suspect that that would cause some adjustment in prices much quicker if China remains alongside and doesn't get doesn't get tangled up in it. You know, Russia is a huge country, huge landmass, has nuclear weapons, it has lots of things that are very reason to, you know, be fearful, but it's not a large economy. And um, in some ways, the Russians did the right thing. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, they did go for their competitive advantage. They did decide to export oil and gas and import everything else. So that's why you saw when they first brought the sanctions on, Belgium said, can we carve out diamonds? Italy said, can we carve out leather goods? You know, you can tell that this... Massive consumption of the Russian oligarch classes, that's what's going to be hit. And But in some ways, you know, Russia was doing what it should be doing, and that was its comparative advantage. But if the world won't buy because of your geopolitical stance, then the world won't buy and you'll have to go back to self-sufficiency. But I was, I was impressed, surprised at how well and how quickly the world responded with a range of sanctions I don't think we've seen before in this sort of way outside when we're actually literally at war with someone. I guess the Iraq sanctions are probably the most recent example that I can think of. Maybe there are others and you, you would know. Um, the, the the swiftness, no pun intended, with which we cut the Russians off almost across the board, almost across the board. As you say, it took Germany a little while to come on board with some of those because they have they energy there. needs, but they got there, that's right. And in relatively quick time too, right? This one, you know, it, it's. I, I was impressed and surprised and I guess... Maybe I was a bit cynical, but I, I kind of thought one of those, you know, it'd be three months, we'll, we'll we'll shake our fists at Putin and let him do what he wanted to do. We kind of did with Crimea to some degree. This time around, though, it seems to he crossed a line and the the world responded in a in a new way, sanctions wise. That is to some degree both welcome and also an interesting move. I think geopolitically, I think, but again, more specifically from a trade perspective, things we were prepared to do and did reasonably quickly seem to be a new class of sanctions in a way that we haven't done before. You're right, Scott. I mean, the litmus test was the Swiss, I mean, Switzerland, the people that quietly did business with Nazi Germany while pretending to be neutral in World War II. They got they they followed the EU, which you're not even a member of. And so that is quite unusual to have the breadth of the sanctions 
as you say, with the SWIFT, which, you know, affects information that's important for exporting and importing, uh, the impact of uh, the ruble, uh, freezing the, you know, the central bank assets, freezing the investment to and from Russia, that was quite extraordinary, making Roman Abramovich sell Chelsea. You know, I mean, you know, all of a sudden, and everyone's on board very quickly. And um, I, I think, I mean, the way I heard it described was, you know, there's, there's a rules-based order in the international economy. You know, it's not perfect, but there is one we all understand. And Russia's trashed it. And once you do that, you've got to really, you know, you've got to really nip it in the bud because once, if Putin gets away with this with Ukraine, then everyone, it's free-for-all. And then you really are in a global economic calamity. So I think they've all made the decision, the European Union, Japan, United States, uh, that, um, you know, we've got to, got to really make sure this doesn't go any further. Mate, I want to get to the impact on Australia in a second. I guess one last question in this area. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's kind of the same idea. The world's, I think, I think correctly, um, has decided to use those sanctions, which are you know tariffs and barriers and and restrictions and that kind of stuff, as you say, across a, a, an entire swathe of the financial and real economy to to make the point. It comes at a time when we are seeing, I think, a rolling back of globalization internationalization multilateralism free trade um, and none of those none of those words are absolute of course uh, as you said with equilibrium they're all they're all yeah definitions everyone wants to carve out and you know there's free and there's freer and there's freeish um, but I it is it is interesting to me that trade has become again a political tool again I think in this case correctly but it does come to some degree in my mind at the end of probably what 10 12 years i guess since the gfc really in the ramifications of that we are seeing more barriers go up than come down potentially or at least the the the, the pace of momentum towards freer trade seems to be going away i guess i'm curious on your whether that's actually what's happening or that's just what i'm seeing and also just your your thoughts on that from an economics perspective from a trade perspective again as as a, a trade economist by trade um is that is that the right characterization and, and kind of what does that mean and what does it do to the world and our future in that sort of context? I think when we talked about COVID and the, the three Cs, Scott, I think I said it was a reset of globalisation, not a yeah, did, yeah. projection. Now, this is a bit different because they are isolating one economy, not the biggest economy in the world, but, uh, you know, one that in oil and gas is significant. So this is, yeah, this is where geopolitics and economics are, are getting, you know, there, there's the interplay. And so this is quite different. I always think that, I always thought that, what could really hurt globalisation would be, you know, vast inequality, you know, workers not getting a fair deal in, in Australia or US or even developing countries. I thought that uh, if there was some environmental shock, that could hold back globalisation or something like a pandemic that we had. And even, even with a pandemic, it really stopped tourism and international education in its tracks with, you know, with the tyranny of social distance. But Goods and services have still flown around the world. Uh, I mean, albeit you know with disruption to global supply chains. But geez, if you go down the go, go down to Port, of Bot Port Botany, you saw building materials come in from all the home renovations. You saw flat screen TVs, everyone at home. You know, you did see you did see the world of trade keep going. So that didn't really stop globalisation in its tracks. But this is different because this will be a real realignment. And the question will be: um, Will this just set Russia back so they won't rejoin the world economy until, you know, the 2050s till 
Putin's 103, probably still in office, uh, uh, and can China basically dodge this disruption and still be a major economic player? Because they're going to see, gee, Russia got punished very quickly. I don't think we're going to play that game, you know. And if anything, you know, you could almost see China saying, oh, we'll try and mediate because we want to be seen as a, a world leader now. So they've, you know, and, and if, if it's in their self-interest to do so, they will because they're not, you know, they're not tied to these things. So um, that that's the, that, it's a bigger play, I think, than uh, what I thought might stop globalisation in its tracks. What concerns me, I guess, at some level is once trade becomes a tool, you know, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not a cynic and I'm, I'm certainly not a conspiracist, but once governments get used to the idea they can use some of these tools, and we've seen China do it to us on, on some commodities, um, you know, the Chinese and the Americans have been having a fight about it, using trade tools as a as a quasi-geopolitical uh, weapon. Um, once these governments now say, well, oh, this worked with Russia, that's actually pretty good. We could we could do more of this stuff. And I just, I, I, I just wondered, you know, to the extent it becomes a, a geopolitical tool, and maybe even, again, maybe even for the right reasons. It's just one of those, another step towards a, a, a reasonable minority of people who are seeing globalisation as the problem. And it has been done, I think, badly and probably haphazardly and we could have and should have done better and we should in the future also do better. But it, 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 it just felt a little bit like another step down that path of, you know, reasons not to do it or, or ways to ways to take advantage of it for national, political, social, whatever reasons that, that actually may undermine what's otherwise, I think, a positive force used well. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, we, we, we saw trade sanctions used with South Africa and it was really the uh, capital strike with Barclays that that made that happen. As you mentioned, Iraq, uh, as you mentioned, Myanmar, you know, pretty limited impact. And this one is huge, isn't it, because of the SWIFT and because of the, the financial constraints. And, uh, you know, this was an extreme case. But, yeah, it does give the green light for people to use it as a, as a tool. I mean, ultimately, I think most trade is government to government anyway. You know, it's regulated in somehow. Uh, uh, but um, the the best thing that could be the best thing that could happen is that Russia gets so isolated that they have to pull back from Ukraine, and um, there's some sort of change in in Russia that allows it to join the international rule, you know, trade rule based system, and that's what we'd ultimately want. You mentioned the impact on Australia's trade partners. This is one I hadn't really thought through, and I'm a big fan of second, third order impacts. And so, you know, as 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 you mentioned, uh, you know, the impact on those food importers, the energy importers that Australia actually has a meaningful trade relationship with. You mentioned South Korea and others. Can you just kind of expand on that? So, so for, for the listener who's saying, well, okay, I get the fact that oil's going up, I get the fact that no one's going to buy Chinese wheat, no, so Russian wheat, Chinese wheat, Russian wheat, at least if you know the sanctions prevail. But that, that second-order impact, the idea that our trading partners themselves may be impacted in, in ways that I assume make them less wealthy and potentially have downward pressure on their standard of living and potentially then maybe make them less likely to buy from us, is that is that the best way to think about how our trading partners are affected by what's happening in, in Ukraine and, and the world response and sanctions and, and other limits? Yeah, I think the way to think about it is uh, when you think of our major trading partners, particularly the big three, China, South Korea, Japan, They've got energy security issues. They've got food security issues, and so the, you know, the great sweet spot for Australia is that we could uh, sell rocks and crops to those three countries, uh, and uh, they meet all their energy needs and all their food needs. Uh, and of course, they educate educate their young people here. They'd come here for holidays, and 
you know, everything was going pretty well. And at the same time, we imported a lot of their manufactured goods uh, and it was sort of a sweet spot. Now, if there's a major shock, so there's a shortage of oil or natural gas around the world and they're paying top dollar for it, well, you know, their income effect's going to be in the wrong direction and that could impact demand from here. Uh, but there is a substitution effect if they suddenly start substituting Australian you know, wheat for Russian wheat and Australian LNG for Russian LNG, well, then that's that's to our benefit. So it's really a case of, will the income effects dominate the substitution effects? Uh, you know, and if you get a, a global shock to financial markets, as you know, uh, then, you know, people lose confidence. So that, that's, the, that's the worry for me. Uh, the question is now, can we realign and um, in some cases take Russia's place but also perhaps give some assistance to the Ukraine uh, in terms of wheat exports. It's a really good point. We talked a bit about the Chinese sanctions and the will they, won't they on iron ore. And thus far, for reasons uh, best known to the Chinese, they haven't chosen to sanction iron ore despite uh, picking up a dozen or so other commodities. And I ask this question in the context of that substitution effect because there is a school of thought which says, and I'd, I'd love your thought, if the Chinese sanction our iron ore, they'll simply buy someone else's and then we'll fill the gap of the other iron ore that would have otherwise gone somewhere else. So, you know, there's a certain amount of iron ore consumed, there are a certain number of iron ore producing countries and whether we send it straight to China or, you know, uh, Brazil sends it to China and we send it to Brazil's previous markets or not, the sheer volume being produced and consumed is not going to change. And so... Curious as to your thoughts, given, as you say, we have a wheat, massive wheat uh, export operation, we have significant oil and gas assets, and, and we do export a lot of that. In this case, do we have, you know, is, is there a, over time, obviously initial shock because initial shortage, but assuming the world either uses a little bit less energy or finds a different way to do it, is it is it musical chairs? Do we simply just supply different partners over time, or, or does, that, uh, does that fundamentally change the supply-demand dynamic over, over an extended period? I think a case of iron ore to China, that's always been the sort of threat raised, oh, we'll just go to Brazil, we'll go to Guinea. Uh, Brazil had a terrible accident with Vale and, and, and issues with COVID and Africa's never come on stream to the extent they wanted it to and that's why that's why they did one belt, one road. You know, they tried to own everything, the airports and the roads to get the iron ore and so on. It hasn't really happened. Um, so I think that's why they think, your Fortescue's are the sort of the very reliable suppliers of, 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 of iron ore. One mistake that's been made about the, uh, I guess you call them the, the blue corner of, a, of the Australia-China debate, there's sort of a red corner and a blue corner. The blue corner, because everything's about defence and security. If we have a trouble with China, we just, we just move to Indonesia or India like that, as our exporters can, right? Uh, and then the red corner says, just do what China says no matter what, yeah, and that doesn't really work either. So I, I suspect that, that Australian iron ore is pretty safe for a long time. With agriculture, I, what's interesting is that if Russian wheat's banned and Ukraine is so damaged that you can't get Ukrainian wheat out to the extent you thought you could, then that's probably going to be price of wheat going up and probably good news for Australian wheat growers. Not that we want those circumstances to improve there. Bottom line, it probably will. And then as Ukraine sorts itself out, we'll probably have aid for Ukraine. I suspect that there'll be a lend-lease agreement and there'll be a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, and um, I imagine that Australia will be part of that. So that's the sort of second-order effects you might see down the track. 
You'd like to think so. Mate, um, let's let's come towards a conclusion as we bring it all the way home to Australia then. And, and this has got global ramifications as well. Um, and there are these two sides to higher prices. As you say, our, our oil and gas, uh, Woodside had its best day on the market on Monday, the 7th of March. So we're just the day before we were recording this, shares are up 10% or so on, on a rising oil price. We've seen uh, Grain Corp do incredibly well on the back of rising wheat prices. So those impacts you're talking about are happening. As you say, the very worst set of circumstances for it, but there are always winners and losers in any um, conflict. And, and it turns out this stage, that's the reality. On the flip side, we're seeing inflationary pressures in Australia already, in theory, and I'll get you a comment on those in a sec, uh, being exacerbated by the rising cost of fuel because not only is it just the cost of fuel at the pump, but it's the second order impact of, you know, the truck that gets the fruit and veg to the shop or the the, the ship that brings the that those manufacturers in from those trading partners, as you, as you say, or the air freight. Um, and then, you know, down and down and down it goes. It becomes potentially... Uh, an issue that continues to stoke those inflationary flames for possibly months to come. And so I guess uh, that's the, you know, we already had an inflation problem. So I guess I'll ask you about where you think we are inflation-wise, but also now given this, does this change the story? Does it, does it, is it, is it temporary? Is it consistent? Do we have an inflation problem all of a sudden or have we always had one? How, how does this feed into the inflation discussion policy-wise and most particularly for the RBA? Well, yeah, I think I think impact of oil prices and uh, global supply chain, anything to address supply, is going to have some impact on inflation. Having said that, I think Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank Governor, is very sensible, and uh, I, I think he knows that uh, uh, the main, you know, external shock could be on on output from you know this Russian Ukraine aspect. So he doesn't want to risk uh, global recovery by going too hard on inflation. The Russian central banks put interest rates up to, what, 20%. We're going to see a whole, uh, you know, set of real real life, not just scenarios about what happens with high interest rates. So I think Philip Lowe's can be very, very careful about, about this. Is inflation, though, an ongoing problem as a result? Where do we, if, if you're kind of, you know, putting, framing a market around the inflation rate over the next, well, call it the end of the year just for fun, but, but feel free to go in between. Do we see an inflation rate with a three or perhaps even a four in front of it at some point this year just because of the direct and indirect impacts of higher oil prices, higher wheat prices, um, global supply chain ructions that continue? We're seeing 7.5% in the US for probably mostly local reasons there, although, again, that kind of, in a globalised world, that's the downside, right? These things get transmitted very quickly. Gee, Scott, when I was a kid, if you tell me we have inflation with a three in front of it, I would have taken it. I mean, amazing. We've been so, uh, our expectations have been so massaged for so long. Um, yeah. Uh, and the fact that we've got an unemployment rate that could have a three in front of it too. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I, I think there's probably, I think we've had low inflation for a long time. In some cases in Australia, it was below the RBA target. So uh, I, I, I think we do have a bit of wiggle room for it to, for it to go up. But again, as you, you've said on your program, um, you know, wages growth has been so, so sluggish. We've, we know that wage price pressures that we had in the 70s. So that's something going in our favour, although I actually think it would be good to have some, uh, some increase. If you think about the policy settings and the policy outcomes now over, over the rest of this year, Obviously, the biggest geopolitical shock is and probably will remain for, I guess, months. Hopefully, it's resolved more quickly, but it is Russia and Ukraine. As you said, the output angle is one that we don't talk enough about, I don't think. We refer quickly to prices without recognising that 
output and, and traded output is is the lifeblood of the economy, right? So it's how much we pay for things, but how many things we pay for, um, those are important elements. What's your expectation for the economy, mate? Wages, inflation, GDP, globally and locally. I know there's a lot of things I've thrown at you there, but how, how are we sitting? Are we are we in danger of that recovery being stifled by this this crisis? Do other central banks, the US most notably, they're you know talking about possibly raising rates by one full percentage point in the next few months. Um, it's going to be an interesting rocky ride for for again. I'm a, I'm a finance guy. Um, you're an economist, but the real economy is where things actually matter for people. What 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 does this look like moving forward over the next six or twelve months? I think the trade impacts of COVID weren't as bad as we thought because of rocks and crops, despite the incredible pain that people in tourism and education have been uh, been absorbing. I, I think going forward, the two things will be that this Russian Ukraine will impact on oil prices and global inflation, and also you know the flood impact on the supply side in. Northern New South Wales and, and and Queensland, or Central New South Wales too. So that, there'll be the two things the RBA will have to take into account. I was surprised at how well um, agricultural and resource exports have still gone, and that's helped our federal budget. We'll now have to factor in. It will take a lot longer than one year, but uh, you know, obviously, defence is now going to get more attention going forward. No matter who wins the federal election, defence will be a big ticket item. And as we know, defence expenditure is not really scrutinised very carefully because a lot of it's, you know, security, strategic, confidential. Do we end the year better than we started? Do we, do we, is the recovery on track? Are we going to continue to see better times ahead? Depends on this war, I think, Scott. I mean, if, uh, if there's a ceasefire and, um, you know, I mean, Ukraine never said it would join NATO. So uh, if, there's a, if there's a a way to get Putin out of there, then yeah, the economy will be a lot better. Um, but if it drags on, uh, then then who knows? So I mean, the the interesting thing is is that I think I mean I really think Poland led the way. Poland and to some extent the UK, Poland particularly, really led the way. Um, to what extent NATO can back them back Ukraine up militarily? Uh, they they're clearly been very very careful. So there's a way of um, if there's a way of uh, getting Putin into such an economic pickle that he has to withdraw from Ukraine or, or back down to some extent, then that's our best. That's our best hope. I hope you're right, mate. Because uh, as I said, we, we started with Malin with you know for all of the for all the economic talk and all the finance talk, and it's important because it's how people get paid and live their lives and standard of living uh, standards of living uh, are based on it. But uh, the humanitarian issue and the the uh, I'll say simply senseless, needless war is um, is the bigger issue, and, and we hope that's brought to a conclusion quickly for for their sake. Uh, if we benefit as well, and that's probably a, a win for everybody. And hopefully, as you say, it does result in a return to or maybe even a strengthened um, rules based order internationally, which I think would be a you know in a horrible situation probably the best outcome we can hope for from here. That's right. Well, my grandfather's dream was that a Jewish comedian would save the world, Scott, so it can be Zelensky. <laughs> no. we're, only, we're only a short distance away. Maybe that's going to come true. Tim, thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.